Now, if you've been paying attention, you'll know that the new wave of British heavy metal was a nationwide affair. Yes, there were hotspots in the Midlands, London and on Tyneside, but bands sprang up from Scotland, Holocaust, Heavy Petten, to Jersey, Legend. The genre was embraced by fans in the Netherlands and Germany, and soon it was to find its way to America, courtesy of two super-influential individuals. The first was Lars Ulrich, a diamond-head obsessive who came to the UK to follow the band around. He went back to California with a suitcase full of new wave of British heavy metal records and formed a band called Metallica. Well, we wonder whatever happened to them. The second was John Zazula, or Johnny Z, a Grateful Dead fan with an eclectic CV. Johnny established Rock and Roll Heaven, a market stall in New Jersey, selling domestic and imported albums and magazines. He and his wife, Marsha, began putting on shows, and for the 1982 Halloween Headbangers Ball, they brought Raven to America to open the bill for Anvil and the headliners' riot. first time we went to America, we got in touch with this guy called John Zazula, who ran a record store in New Jersey. And according to Dave Wood, it's the biggest record store on the Eastern Seaboard. Well, it wasn't. It was in a little flea market, but he did a lot of imports and a lot of orders. And he says, I'm putting a show on in Staten Island. I want Raven to play it, and then we'll do a few other shows. Yeah, let's go to America, which was amazing. We went there and we played a show with Vanville and Riot, and Riot were headlining and they were complete bastards and <laughs> took a four-hour sound check. And then when we were playing, we're unplugging stuff and putting the kick drum where the microphone was, like all this sabotage type stuff. It didn't matter because we still went down the storm. And then we did a couple of shows by ourselves, a couple of shows with Vanville, old friends of ours, and just said, let's come back and do it next year and do it properly. In July 1983, Raven returned for a full cross-country tour. So they're arranging a tour and said, we've got the biggest band in San Francisco to open for you. Y&T are going to open for us? No, no, Metallica. Who? Never heard of them. Got a cassette, put it in, it sounded like Motorhead on the wrong speed, too fast. I was like, oh, OK, these guys sound good. So that was their first tour opening for us. And we did like, whatever, 27, 28 dates all the way across America. From New York, Jersey, Boston, Buffalo, Rochester, Chicago, Arkansas, and places like that, which were just like playing on another planet, and all the way across to California, which was great. That was another time seeing crowds that were even more crazier than everyone else, because at that point they were all stage diving and going mental. Raven were captivated by the US, and coming home to Neat was a massive disappointment. After doing that, it was like, what do you want to do? Do you want to stay home and glob 20 bucks a week off Dave Wood and do nothing? Or are we going to come over and do something in the States? So we came over to the States and basically been there ever since. We just took the chance. I mean, at the time, Rob was in a relationship. I was married. My brother was married. And then that all went down the toilet. The band returned again in 1984, but this time for good, with Anthrax supporting. They closed their tour on the 3rd of August with a show at the Roseland Ballroom in Manhattan. 
We headlined before us was Metallica and before them was Anthrax. And all three bands were unsigned and they were playing a sold out show in Manhattan, which never happens. So the place was full of record companies and our wives and girlfriends that came over for the show. And before the show, it all said, by the way, we're all splitting up. All three bands ended up getting signed from that. Following Raven, the next band across the Atlantic were Venom after their first explosive in-your-face show that took place at a festival in Popperinje in Belgium on June of 82. Venom received a call from Johnny Z that would take them across the Atlantic. Satan, Father, help me from this grave. Demons, warriors, ever be my slaves. I can reason with men and water And John booked this gig and he said, I've got these guys from Frisco, going to come over, you're going to stay at my house, big house he had. And Eric said, right, we're going to get a container, we're going to put all the back line in. There's no thoughts of like, America's got drum kits, America's got amplifiers. It was just, we've got all this equipment, we're going to put it all in this container, we're going to put it on a boat, we're going to ship it here. So we did, along with all the pyrotechnics, all the bombs, open bomb powder, fuses, bomb board, everything. And we shipped it all over there, tons of it. We shipped it all over there and we flew over, got to his house. And then two days later, this thing turned up. And that was the gig. And Metallica opened and we went on and it was absolute mayhem. And I did all the pyros as usual, loaded all the pots up and we blew a hole in the stage. Before we went on, when we were doing all this, the guy, John Stilos, just brought his book out. And the guy said to John, John, I'm really scared here. I'm really frightened. They don't seem to know what they're doing. Are you sure that this is going to be okay? And John was like, yeah, yeah, trust me, man, trust me. We're all going to make money. It's going to be great. And I did, I blew a hole in the stage and, and ruptured a water main. So there's water chucking out the front of the stage. And when we finished the gig, we were putting all the gear away and one of the bomb pots was missing. There was like a box with these three huge steel thick bomb pots in, surrounded by sand. And we had six of these boxes and they'd all gone off. And this thing had taken off and gone across the top of the crowd. It was embedded in the wall at the back on the, the balcony. John was like, Christ, man, I could have killed somebody. Could have all sued. That would be the end of the whole thing. And it was like, shit, you have to dial it back a little bit. On the Venom Road crew was Jed Wolf, the little brother of the band's manager, Eric Cook. Jed was living the dream, spending time at Venom rehearsals, jumping on the drum kit when Abaddon wasn't around, sneaking into clubs and gigs, and now he too was on his way to America. I always remember it was April 83. I went to the Mayfair for the very first time. Twisted Sister performed, and my brother sneaked me in because I wasn't 18. So I sneaked in to see Twisted Sister. And then on the Saturday, we got the things together. On the Sunday, we went over to America and we played two shows at the Paramount Theatre in New York uh, with Metallica supporting. But we were over there for two weeks. There's Venom, the crew, and Metallica all living in the same house, which was John Zula's house. They went on to manage Metallica. It was just like crazy, crazy, like all these people lying around the house. I felt sorry for his wife, Marsha, because she was having to make breakfast in the mornings. But it was hilarious because when we first turned up there, and she says, what do you want? There was about 12 of us. She says, oh, can we just have pie and chips or something dead easy you know and she went right how many pies and, I, and like I'll, go, I'll have two and I'll have three and two just going wow two three this it went on like that you know ended up was about something like 25 pies and we're going yeah yeah and chips you know? and she's going like are you sure and we're going yeah yeah of course you sure so right okay then so then she ordered them but we had half an hour we're starving type thing and then they come pies are pizzas in America aren't they yeah, so all these pizzas turned up, and we're going, uh-oh, and all that. And we had to eat pizzas for three days. <laughs> that was it. We will keep for breakfast, we had eggs and all in the morning, but it was just pizzas for three days after that, you know. It's just like, you's ordered them, you's want them, pies, there you go, you know. But on the night times, everyone was going out. 
to a local club called Lemos. There's all sorts of bands. I think one like Raven were playing. Anvil were definitely playing over there. Over there. And I was too young to go. Gordon on the, on the crew as well, so we had to stay in the house. So we were doing stuff. But one of the crew went out. He was 19, but looked 21. You've got to be 21 over there. And he went out and he went to a local bar. And they says, what do you want? What you got? They says, we're all these beers, this and everything. And all that. He goes, oh, no. He says, I'll have a, I'll have a pint of scotch. And the bomb goes, excuse me? He goes, I'll pint of scotch. He went, a pint of scotch? He went, yeah, yeah. And he went, okay then, right. And he come back with a pint of whiskey. He goes, like, that'd be $300, please. <laughs> I'll just scotch you out there, it's whiskey. Don't think it over, just stupid Geordies. Metallica, early in 1984, would go on to open for Venom as they took their Seven Dates of Hell tour across Europe, although unfortunately the support slot for the UK date at Hammersmith Odeon, that was on the 1st of June, went to the robust but much less heavy Dumpy's Rusty Nuts. But just as Raven and Venom had given Metallica their big break by taking them out on support, Another thrash band, destined for monumental success, repaid the debt by giving another Jodie band the opening slot at their debut UK gig. Slayer appeared at London's Marquee in June 1985, and they chose Atomcraft to open for them. Atomcraft was put together, and after a series of fits and starts, was put to rest by bassist vocalist Tony the Demolition Man Dolan. After taking a year out, Dolan went to stay with his sister in Canada. I think after a couple of months, I wanted to play again. And my brother-in-law came in one day and he bought me an amplifier and a guitar. So I used to spend the days in the house writing all the time. And then I went out to a club to see a band on one weekend and I met this drummer and that was it. He said, I'm playing in this band, I'd like you to come and audition. So I went down and auditioned as a guitarist. I had to learn several songs and the solos and I thought, oh my God, I'm not I'm not that advanced as a soloist. And I heard all these other amazing guitarists I thought play. But I went in and walked out and they said, yeah, we love you. We love your attitude and stuff. I guess it was a very different for them coming from Newcastle as opposed to a local Canadian. And, and that was it. So I started playing with those guys and then it was round about the end of 84. We had this show book and they wanted to pay us, but we had to have our social security number and I'd lost my social security cards and all my papers. And the drummer said, it's okay, go down to immigration, my mom says, and just tell them. And so I went down and then I realized I was on a visitor's passport and it had run out like eight months before. I just went down there to think, oh, they're just going to give me a new social security number. And they came out and said, you came in here on a visitor's passport. I said, yeah. I think it's out of date. They went, yeah, so you've been here illegally for eight months. So you have one week to get out of Canada. We'll come to your house, arrest you, and you'll you'll be banned for life. I was like, oh, my God. So within a week, I was on a plane coming back. I went straight down to Nick Records because I had a guitar that I'd purchased. And I went in there, knocked on the door, and Conrad Lant answered the door, Cronus. And he said, you all right? I said, yeah. I said, look, I'm looking to trade this guitar. I sell it to someone in there. And he went, what do you want for it? I said, well, if I could get a trade for a bass guitar, it would be good, but uh, I, don't, I don't care, really. And he said, I've got a bass guitar you could have. I'll trade you. So I went, okay. So he actually gave me his bass guitar that he used at the first Hammersmith Odeon in 84. And I gave him the guitar. And he said, so are you in a band? And I said, I just need a drummer, really. I said, I think I've got a guitarist. And he said, I know a drummer. And the drummer he suggested was who, who had played with Tyson Dogs on their first album was actually the brother of Eric Cook who was managing Venom. 
And I met Jed. We got on really well. He was great, seemed perfect. And then we got a young guitarist and that was it. Beginning 85, we did a four-track demo at Neat Records. And Dave Woods, who owned Neat Records, heard it that afternoon and went, OK, make an album. And put out Future Warriors, the first album in 85. I came up with the title Future Warriors, and then that's how we put together the whole image. And the whole image of Appencraft, compared to what it used to be, was the Mad Max image, which is very heavy metal, but it was purely the Mad Max thing, and all that, the studs and leather and baseball things. And we put all this image together. It was hilarious at the time. So we did all photo shoots, but we did with individual costumes. So it was great. And my costume, that many people know, was literally designed and actually put together and made by Mantis from Venom. So he's a pretty good seamstress. <laughs> and he put that together, and we had all this image, and what literally, honestly, going around second-hand shops and buying old leather jackets and cutting them up and spraying them silver and doing all those things and well look great look really good did all the photo shoots and everything and at that time there's a band came out from america called warrior and they were on like some major record company and they had must have like a million pounds spent on the image and everything and everybody loved our image which was from oxfam <laughs> and they just all got slagged off because we looked the same but ours just looked more authentic with a new Atom Craft and a brand new image came a new manager, Jed's brother and Venom manager, Eric Cook. Eric's first act was to get the band that prestigious opening slot for Slayer, and this would prove to be Atom Craft's first ever live show. Eric got to a show at the Marquee with Slayer. Slayer were coming over, it was the debut show in Europe, and uh, we got the support slot, and we're like, wow, that, this is something good. So Eric says, just want to do it? We went, yeah, definitely, you know, so it was our, we'd never played a show before. So again, we're rehearsing, so like in bedrooms and all sorts, you know, just getting it all ready and everything. And then uh, I think it was June. So we put all the gear in the back of the van and we've got two roadies driving it down there. And we got down, we didn't have a hotel. And we got down there for the show and getting all ready and setting all the gear up. And then Slayer come, we met them, how you doing and things like this. And the stage at the, the original marquee was that small, they couldn't get two drum kits on. So Dave Lombardo says, I'll take my kit up after the soundtrack, you put your kit on Jed and uh, the use play and then we'll swap them back over. I went, are you sure? I went, ah, toast man, don't worry about it, brilliant. I went, wow. He says, one condition. I says, what's that? He says, I've got no drumsticks, can you lend us a couple of drumsticks? I went, absolutely, yeah. Well, it goes on, we've got all this future warrior gear goes on. So we plays the show. After three and a half songs, all the gear finished, just stopped. Couldn't get it working again, so we just trashed everything. Now, I was going to smash my drum kit up anyway. I brought took a sledgehammer, as you do, just this piece of special equipment. We just trashed the whole lot. The uh, support band, support and Slayer. Uh, it was a sold-out gig, obviously, and we trashed the whole lot. And we didn't just trash the whole lot, we threw it out to the audience. So after the show, people were walking home with bass drums and all the sorts of like this, you know, it was hilarious. We thought it was hilarious anyway. So then Slayer puts the kit on and all that going right, and Dave goes, right, you've got them drumsticks. I went, oh. Oops, I threw everything out. Me roadie had to go back into the crowd, hunt for my drumsticks that I threw out and found them and bring them back for Dave Lombardo to play the show. Luckily for Jed, there were lots of Atomcraft crew on hand to help find those drumsticks. And the van we had packed a van with about 18 people, all friends of ours, who said, can we come down? So we all got in this van and drove all the way down to the marquee. I remember when we got out, the promoter was outside. He went, yeah, we said, yeah, we're Atomcraft. And he went, okay. 
How many in the band? He said, uh, there's just three of us. He said, that's what I thought. So who were all these people? I said, there are technicians. He went, fucking what, 20 technicians? <laughs> he was like, yeah. He said, Slayers just turned up. There's only five of them. And I was like, well, you know, we just have a lot of technicians. <laughs> and uh, the whole show went bad. And nobody was technicians, of course. So we couldn't fix anything. And after only three songs with Slayer at the Marquee, this halcyon legendary venue, we smashed all our equipment and walked off. But for some, it wasn't all fun and games. And with great success comes great responsibility. And Venom were about to find this out with the success of their second album, 1982's Black Metal. The magazine at the time was Kerrang, which had come from Sounds. The people from Sounds had made this thing called Kerrang, and now it was Glossy magazine, and it was a bit smaller. It wasn't a daily paper-looking sort of thing like Sounds was. It wasn't black and white. And he turned up, and he was a big guy, and he had this punk attitude and whatever. And he was like, right, he says, I don't think you're a heavy metal band. I don't know if you have thought about this. And we, we just leapt on him. We just, we're not heavy metal. And he had a copy of Kerrang, which had Bon Jovi on the cover. And Bon Jovi had already dissed us. Bon Jovi had said, if that's the future of heavy metal, then heavy metal's dead. And we went, well, if that's heavy metal, then no, we're absolutely not heavy metal. We don't fit in with that at all. We consider that a rock band, a soft rock band, an American rock band, a hair rock band. We don't consider it. He says, well, if that's them, then what are you? And we said, we're black metal, we're death metal, we're speed metal. The three of us just battered them with these words. He was like, wait, 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 I've got to write all this down, I've got to write all this down and, and make sense of it, you know. But he, he got it, he said, it, you're not punk, but you're not heavy metal at all. We didn't know, and he was like, what are you? And when, when we came out with these genres, we didn't know that that's what would happen. We just thought that that's a way of describing us, that's the way we feel when we're playing. That then became genres of specific areas in Scandinavia or specific parts of America or South America or Canada. When you trace bands back, you quite often come back to Venom through any one of those genres. And a band who, like, I don't know, Burzum or something, won't necessarily like other bands, but when you follow the roads back, it comes to Venom. But there's definitely a crossroads where Venom is in the timeline, in the historical timelines, where many offshoots go that don't come around us. They all come back to us, and, and then we've got our influences. The influence of black metal was beginning to spread and bands all around the world were forming their own sound, building up their own identities. But it was a group of young Scandinavians disturbing and destructive version of black metal that would dominate headlines and throw the scene into disgrace. A string of church burnings and murders associated with Helvete, Norwegian for Hell. A record shop in Oslo threw Norwegian black metal into the spotlight, owned by Mames Oysten Arseth, also known as Euronymous. The shop was a hub for the growing scene, and Euronymous frequently took younger artists under his wing to kickstart their careers. Varg Vikernes, or Count Grishnach, who played a starring role in the crime wave, quickly became attached to Euronymous and the scene. Vikerns would later go on to murder his friend, stabbing him to death. Having brought black metal to the mainstream attention through a January 1993 interview in Bergen's Tidende, under the cover of the pseudonym Count Grishnach, Vikernes was joined by Euronymous for an explosive cover feature in Kerrang. It was issue 436 that hit the newsstands on March 27, 1993. The headline screamed, Arson, Death, Satanic Ritual, The Ugly Truth About Black Metal. 
In the five-page article written by Gary Arnup, the pair cite Venom and Bathory as early influences. And when Arnup points out that Venom's use of Satanism was a gimmick purely for entertainment, Euronymous responded that the Norwegians choose to believe otherwise, going on to claim knowledge of ten deaths associated with the influence of Venom's music, saying, I hope Venom know about this and they think it's terrible because it is their legacy. Venom is not a religion. The only religion I preach is rock and roll. That's all I'm trying to do here is just create something different to entertain people. And you get people who say, oh no, yeah, you must really be a Satanist. I've always said, why is it that if somebody in a band touches this subject, then he must really be doing that? But if an actor does it, oh, well, that's just Gary Oldman. There's no different. We're artists. We are just creative artists. He practices his art by acting. I do mine by music. Around this time in America, the Parents Music Resource Center, an influential American pressure group led by Tipper Gore, wife of future Vice President Al Gore, began to flex its muscles in the argument over censorship. It pulled together its Filthy 15, a bizarre and eclectic list of the 15 songs it was most offended by. For those who care, top of the list was Prince's Darling Nikki, followed by Sheena Easton's Sugar Walls. Both were targeted because of their sexual themes. Judas Priest clocked in at number three with Eat Me Alive, and Wasp's Animal, Fuck Like a Beast, only made it to number nine. And Venom's Possessed came in at number 14 for its occult themes. Berated by many as the Washington Waves, the PMRC was responsible for a time at least in bringing censorship back to the fore in complete contradiction with the American Constitution's First Amendment and the right to freedom of speech. In fact, having a PMRC sticker attached to your album became more like a badge of honour, so in reality the whole thing backfired. For a while, it did appear that music could indeed be subject to draconian censorship and Venom had first-hand experience of the situation, as Abaddon, Tony Bray, recalls. The PMRC and the Christian Front or whatever were always going to be offended. They were almost promoting us and promoting other bands. They would be outside a gig. I'm pretty sure I read that Ozzy Osbourne went outside some gig that Black Sabbath would do and Ozzy went and joined in the march against himself. So that none of the bands ever took it seriously. The moral panic in America, particularly around heavy metal music, was further fueled when Judas Priest were taken to court by the families of two American fans who claimed that backwards messages on the song Better By You Better Than Me, originally a spooky tooth song, had encouraged them to commit suicide. On the 23rd of December 1985, listening to the song's parent album Stained Class, Drunk and High, the lads had shot themselves, claiming they'd heard the words, Do it! One died, but the other survived, dying of a drug overdose three years later. The case went to court in July 1990 and was thrown out after four weeks. Amidst the chaos of it all, Abaddon, Tony Bray, found himself on BBC's Newsnight programme with Jeremy Paxman. When I did the Paxman thing, Jeremy Paxman on Newsnight in England, 
um, that's the first time I'd saw any of it in England. He says, you're using the name Abaddon. Yeah. And he says, well, what have we got to say for yourself? I said, well, firstly, we're not trying to get any sort of congregation. We don't want anybody to pay anything into us. If they want to buy a T-shirt, if they want to buy something, they can do. And then this guy started. He had a lot of recording equipment, which had been given to him, been bought by the council and been given to him to highlight this problem. The blasphemous words that we were saying came out. Pastor said, well, that's quite clear now. You can hear what you're saying. I says, yeah, but that's on a song called In League With Satan. And it's written in English, In League With Satan. And it's on an album called Welcome To Hell. I says, I couldn't make it more plain. There's nothing hidden. The fact that we're using backward masking makes it sound a bit spookier. But the words are written in English on the front. And if you don't want to buy it or you don't want your kids to buy it, take it off them. It's like when people started going on about Elvis Presley, you know, and he was deranging the children and, and, and he, was, he was too overtly sexual. Like, well, that's rock and roll. Let's go back in time to, to the history of music. I mean, there'll always be somebody who's a bad boy.